All right, well, as you take a seat, take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We are continuing to make our way at this point through the Passion Week as um, Jesus is now in Jerusalem and will have uh, some um, continuing conflicts with the religious leaders. Uh, we're now in, in the, the passage that we're in. We're, on, we're in Tuesday, and so just a couple of days away from Jesus being arrested and then, of course, crucified and, and three days later being raised from the dead. Um, last week, uh, Chuck had, <laughs> I didn't do this to him on purpose, but that was a tough passage. I mean, he's, in fact, when I, when I texted him and, and asked him if he could fill in for me last Sunday since I was going to be out and told him where the passage was going to be in Mark, he texted me back and he said, I don't think I've ever preached on that before. And, and that's, that's quite a passage where we're talking about Jesus' authority being challenged. Um, this morning is really going to build off of that, off of uh, Jesus explaining or, or, or uh, kind of guiding the religious leaders to, to think in their own minds why they're so opposed to Jesus, why, why are they so opposed to his authority. T- today's going to build on that and uh, will further expose to them, expose to the religious leaders exactly who it is they're dealing with. And then at the end of the passage today, we'll see that things really ramp up in their efforts to uh, have Jesus arrested. All right, so this morning we come to the, the parable of the vineyard owner, the first time that we're told there's a parable in Mark. And in fact, I think the only time that, that we're told that, that in, in Mark's gospel that Jesus gives a parable. Um, and and actually, we're going to, the, the title that I, I put, I put a title in the bulletin and then I changed it. And so that's the problem with print medium, right? You can't go back and change it. But um, title that Christ the Cornerstone, because he's going he's gonna to tell the religious leaders who he is fairly explicitly in a way they certainly would have understood uh, based on their knowledge of the Old Testament. And yet, there's a big difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? And, and they can even though they knew the Scriptures. They, they, they did not have the soft hearts to respond to the Messiah whom, G, whom God had sent to them. So that's where we're going to be this morning, the parable of the vineyard owner. Let's stand together as we read verses, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. The Lord, the Lord says this, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then, they, then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. 
They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against him. So they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage and pray you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would speak to us this morning, that we would not be like the tenant farmers or the religious leaders, but our hearts would be open and receptive to receiving Christ, to proclaiming Christ. Will you do a work in us this morning? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, again, we're, we're told that he began to speak to them in parables. And uh, this is, especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus' favorite way of teaching. And a parable is, at its, the simplest definition I can give about a parable is that it's a story with a point. It's a story that, that communicates a truth. And in the case of Jesus, his parables uh, are stories that communicate a truth about the kingdom of God. And in this case, uh, he picks a parable that uses some imagery that his listeners, his, his immediate audience, the religious leaders, Mark's readers would have been familiar with. It actually goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, this, this imagery of the vineyard. And so uh, I've just put this up on the screen, and I want us to look at this for just a second. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This kind of sets up where, where Jesus is, is, is this morning. It'll, it'll give us some context for why he chose the, the vineyard. Isaiah 5 says this, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. Now here, the, the vineyard is presented as Israel, and God as the one who planted it, and saying he expected good fruit. But that's not what the vineyard gave him. The vineyard gave him worthless fruit. Now this is, keep in mind, this is Isaiah, right? So this is, he's writing about 700 years before Christ is born and, and explaining to the, the people, his audience, listen, you have turned away from the God who called you. From the very God who gave you life, you have turned your back on him and are yielding worthless fruit. It was a call to repentance. And now, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, he's going to use the same imagery, a vineyard. He's going to use these same images to tell the religious leaders exactly what it was they were doing to God's people, to God himself. So we have some characters. I want to set this up very quickly. In, in our parable this morning, we have characters. You have the owner, 
We have the tenant farmers, the servants, and then the son. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. I'm going to tell you exactly what each of these things represents, okay? So that as we go through this, you're not going, I wonder, what, what, why, why that? No, here, here's, here's, here's the way Jesus presents this. Uh, the owner represents God, the, the one who owns the vineyard. The tenant farmers then would represent Israel, and more specifically even their religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees those who are supposed to guide the people into the things of God. The servants would be those whom God has sent proclaiming the good news of the coming Messiah, proclaiming God's wrath and his mercy. So uh, specifically the prophets in the Old Testament, maybe in Jesus' day, much more recently, that would be someone like John the Baptist who came uh, proclaiming and, and, and declaring that people should repent and believe in the name of the Son of God. And then you have the Son of God, which of course represents Jesus. Okay, so these are the characters in our story this morning. And we'll see several um, tragedies along the way, and then Jesus making a very explicit point about how people should respond. First thing we see is that God sent his servants, and they were rejected. Look at me at verses 1 through 5. It says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Notice here that the owner has done all the work. Do you see that? He, he planted it, fenced it off, dug a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower. So he has, he has done the work. He has set things up, and then he leases it to tenant farmers whose job it is to come in and take care of what's, what's already been built, to maintain it. Now, oftentimes, from, from the time that um, a crop was first planted until you really got a, um, a yield that was worth anything, took roughly five years. And so uh, this was a long process for the tenant farmers to come in and cultivate the land, take care of it, grow it, um, and, and be good tenants for this owner who's entrusted this uh, task to them. But, by the way, in some cases, this still happens. Uh, I grew up in, in cotton farming country. Uh, my dad, for uh, most of his uh, career as a farmer, leased land. He owned one place, but he leased several others. And so you have an owner who owns the dirt. Then you have a farmer who, uh, who leases it and, and plants and cultivates and takes care of it. And then at the end, the, the farmer and the owner share in the profits, right? That's, that's the way that works. Being a landowner is, is a pretty sweet deal uh, if, you can, if you can afford it. You don't have to really do anything, right? Just find somebody to farm it, and then you get some money, hopefully, at the end of the year. However, what we see is that the tenants in this story were wicked. Look at verse 2. At harvest time, right? So, so they've, they've done the work. He's waited. He's been patient while, while all these seasons have come and gone. And now it's finally time to harvest and, and to get a return on all the work that the owner put in at the beginning. And to trust these, these tenant farmers who've been working this land, now, now's the time to collect. And so uh, at harvest time, 
He sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. Now, notice here it says some of the fruit, not all of the fruit. He came to collect the, the share that was owned to the, to, owed to the owner. I'm sure this would have been some sort of an, an, a formal agreement, some sort of contract that was, that was established. But, verse 3, they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Now, at this point, most owners might say, hold up, we have a problem. But what we see in this case is the owner, remember, who represents Almighty God, is patient. And so when God sent messengers to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and they were rejected, he didn't say, that's it. End of story, game over. No. Instead, like the vineyard owner, verse 4, he sent another servant to them. They hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He sent many others. Some they beat and others they killed. Now, this is bad business practice, but it's, it's illustrating the grace of God toward his people. He gives them many opportunities to repent, many opportunities to awaken to the truth of the kingdom of God. We see here God's great patience with us. And I don't know about you, I'm, I'm pretty glad that he's patient. I'm, I'm glad that he doesn't pour his wrath out on us when we miss it. That is good news. In fact, in, in Hebrews 11, we have a description of this, of, of what this looked like as, as the writer of Hebrews is looking back at all those who by faith trusted in the promises of God and, and proclaimed the truth of the gospel to people. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. This is in Hebrews 11.35. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. When, when the writer of Hebrews looks back at the Old Testament prophets, said this, other people were tortured, not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. This is the way the writer of Hebrews describes the prophets. Those, those who were sent to the people who claimed to be the people of God. And this is how they were treated. And yet God continues to send people. In a, in a commentary I read this week, Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern uh, Seminary in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, he, he explains this, just to put it in perspective for us, what some of the, these messengers in the Old Testament experienced. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Isaiah, tradition says, was sawed in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. Being a prophet was a, was a dangerous gig, by the way. Um, Nehemiah says, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And then, of course, in more recent days, as far as the ministry of Jesus is concerned, John the Baptist had been beheaded. 
So God sends people proclaiming the coming kingdom of God, and they're rejected. Then we get to verse 6. We're told the owner, God, sent his son, and he was killed. Look at me at verse 6. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, as I said, we know the owner of the vineyard represents God. So this should immediately, this this, um, owner sending his beloved son, we, we should immediately recognize that that's Jesus in this story and, and Jesus explaining why he was sent. So it should immediately call the passages, call to our mind passages like John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 9.6, which we read every Christmas, a child will be born to us, A son will be given to us. The owner in the story thought that surely these tenants would respect his son, coming as a personal representative of his father. Instead, they echo word for word the plot of Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37. Come, let's kill him. Maybe they thought, since the, the son came instead of the owner himself, perhaps these tenant farmers thought that the, that the owner was dead. And so if they just killed this son, the heir, then, then they could lay claim to the inheritance. So, so their, their wickedness goes beyond just not wanting to give up their, uh, the owner's portion of the, uh, of, of the produce. It really goes beyond that to a deep-seated greed. If we kill him, then we can make ourselves rich. What we see here is that those who should have respected the owner, who agreed to work for the owner, had completely disregarded his wishes. And in the same way, those who should be the people of God, those who even had become leaders of the people of God, had completely disregarded God's wishes and his commands. So then in verse 9, Jesus just simply asked this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that it's actually the religious leaders who answer him and say he will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. So for all the ways the religious leaders miss the point, they're really not that dense. They understand, right? You, you treat You treat servants and you treat the owner's son wickedly in this way. This is what's coming to you. The owner himself is going to show up, and that's the end of the story. Then we get to the point. The point of all this is not that that the tenant farmers are wicked, that the religious leaders in Jesus' day were wicked, and they were. Not that God's people had continually rejected him. They had. The point is this. Christ is the cornerstone of salvation. That this last one whom they rejected 
is the only plan. There is no plan B. There's not a substitute. This time there is no, well, we missed that one, but we'll just wait for the next Messiah. No, this is it. And this is the way Jesus explains it. Haven't you read this scripture? And then this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Now, it, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a lot of knowledge of construction, but I at least know this. The cornerstone is important. In fact, in, in the way buildings were constructed, particularly in the first century, the cornerstone, or, or if you're thinking of an arch, the capstone, which is the, the center piece that would hold the entire structure together. The cornerstone was the, was the building that was, was the piece that tied the foundation together and kept the building stable. What, what Jesus quotes here out of Psalm 118 is the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They've rejected the piece that holds the whole building together. Rejecting it would make the building unstable. So we sang songs this morning in Christ alone. We sang a couple of songs that talked about Jesus being the cornerstone. He's the foundation for life and faith. And without knowing it, without at this point understanding what they're doing, the religious leaders, by rejecting Jesus, are rejecting their only hope for salvation the people's only hope for salvation. Now, the religious leaders certainly understand here what Jesus is telling them, what he's teaching them. You are, you have rejected the entire key to everything it is that you teach. In another gospel, Jesus will say it this way. You, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have life, and yet it is they that point to me. Jesus is saying you spend your entire life studying the scriptures because you think that by obeying your rigid structures is what gives you life, and instead you're missing the whole point. Now, now listen, to be fair to the religious leaders, would you like being told that the last 40 years of your life have been spent completely missing the entire point? I don't think so. Imagine walking in on retirement and folks going, hey, you know, man, we sure do appreciate you, but everything you've done for your entire career is wrong. Here's your watch. Godspeed. Have a nice retirement. <laughs> but Instead, so, so at this point, the religious leaders have a, have, a, um, have a couple of choices, right? They could, in humility, say, I think he's right. He, we, we've been waiting so long for this promised Messiah, and here he is. And he looks a little different than, than what we thought. But we're open to this. 
Some did. We, we see that in, in the case of Zacchaeus, who originally, which by the way, his story in, in John chapter 3 is where we get John 3.16. We're told in that passage that Zacchaeus, this, this Pharisee, or excuse me, not Zacchaeus, he was the wee little man. Just blanked on my, on my Bible characters here. Nicodemus, thank you. All those emises. Um, <laughs> Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 because he's afraid of the, of the other religious leaders and what they'll think if, if he goes to Jesus. But he's just sitting here and he, and, and he explains. He said, listen, there are some of us who know exactly who you are. He begins asking him questions. After Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is one, goes with Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body off the cross and place it in the tomb. So some did. But some hardened their hearts against Jesus in verse 12. It says, They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now we see something about their hearts there, right? We, we know Jesus, this great rabbi, this great teacher, the one whom people are following, we know he specifically taught this against us. Well, do you think he could be right? No, let's kill him. It, you know, as, as much as I hate to say it, don't we still see some of this in our world today? You know, I, I see this and I think, you know, there, I, I see some inconsistencies in your, in your life, maybe in the fact that you claim to be a follower of Christ and then I look at your Instagram or your Twitter feed and I see the way that you um, react with other people. I, I, you know, I saw this thing at work and, you know, you kind of use some language that um, I can't repeat and I'm maybe even invented new words that I've never heard before, right? So just, there's some inconsistencies there. How dare you judge me? Of course, the question then is, is if we are the ones who are being convicted by the Holy Spirit or having things pointed out in our lives, how do we react? Do we soften our hearts and say, you know, there could be some, could be some truth in that? Or maybe like the Pharisees, are we tempted to harden our own hearts as well? So the question before the Pharisees, the question before us today is simply this, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this cornerstone? So if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we, we put this up every week. It's just a very simple prayer to help you kind of understand what it means to, to confess sins and to become a follower of Christ. And you can do that right now, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching us online, you can pray something like this, God, I am a sinner and I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive him into my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life, and I thank you for giving me eternal life. If you want to know more about following him, we're going to stand and sing in just a few moments. You can come down and meet me up front. I'd love to visit with you about what that looks like. If you're Worshiping with us online, there's a phone number up there. You can text that, and I'd love to visit with you later on this week, show you what it means to follow Christ. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, let, let me help us understand 
where we are in this story. Paul in Ephesians 2 takes this passage out of Psalm 118 that, that says that the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone, and he, he helps the church understand what that means for them. This is what he says. So then, he's writing to Gentiles. Remember those who were not a part of the family of God? He says this, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. By, by, by the way, one of the greatest illustrations of this I've ever seen, if, you, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to a U.S. citizenship ceremony, you see this on display. Those who are formerly strangers now become citizens. I got a chance to do that not long after I got here with a uh, uh, Kamal and, and Elba, when Elba got her uh, citizenship, got to go over to Las Cruces and be a part of that, and there was so much joy in that room because those who once were outside have now been brought in. How much more true is that of the family of God? You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. Look here, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Let me share some good news with you this morning. Our local church, we're not just here on our own, struggling for the sake of the gospel. We, we are not the, let, let us never begin to think, well, we're the lone people holding on to the truth of God's word. Everybody else is rejected. If they were true believers, they would be in this room on Sunday morning. No, no. Our local church stands on the foundation that was laid by the apostles, by the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He's the security. He's the head and the one who has promised, I will build my church. So let's follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship. To be reminded that you are the cornerstone on whom our faith is built, on whom our churches are built. May we pursue you as the people of God. May we believe that you're in control of our lives, that you're in control of your church, that you have plans for us. It's not our job to ask you to bless the plans that we've made. It's our job to follow you as the head. And so help us. Give us strength. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.